Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. All right. Today is January 15th, around 1213 p.m. We're going to be doing some new stuff today with the podcast. I was pretty excited for this. Um, It was a great divisional round weekend. Lots of good games as a whole. Lots of upsets. Luckily, I didn't go one and four again, even though it looked like going into Sunday, I was going to go 0 for four. But I salvaged it out and pulled out a 2-2 two and two record. We're not going to talk about Ronnie Props for now. He's probably asking for more money after the weekend he just had. But anyway, so we're going to try some new stuff out today. I figured the whole analyzing the game by game type format was kind of annoying. It may be a little boring and dragged out at some time. So I'm going to find a new way to approach how to attack these game recaps. And I decided on a winner-loser type format. Now, it's not going to be for each game. It's just going to be more for who I thought won and lost the week. But we're going to get into that a little bit later because we got some important headlines to go over that I want to talk about today. So we're going to start that right off with talking about the whole Luke Keekly retirement that happened last night. Now, this was officially posted via the Panthers' Twitter. And we clearly saw that Luke Keekley was absolutely destroyed by the decision he made. And if you watched that video, it was pretty emotional to watch in the latter half. As you could tell, he truly felt that he didn't want to retire, but he stated himself that he felt that at the end of the day, it came down to him being a very big competitor. And he said that even though he still wants to play, he felt like he no longer could have contributed to the game at the capacity that he wanted to. And that obviously means he felt that his injuries in the past have really helped him, have not helped him, have hurt him to the point where he feels like he can't play at the all pro level that his competitive nature would allow him to. And seeing as I've watched Luke Keekley ever since he was drafted, and I know that his game is defined for his physicality and tenaciousness that if he really felt that he wasn't playing at 100% that he just didn't want to play. Luke Heakley served as a great example for young players to model their game under greatness without distractions, as I would phrase it. Luke Heakley's resume included seven Pro Bowl nods, a seven-time AP All-Pro selection with five on the first team, the Defensive Player of the Year Award in 2013, and the Defensive Rookie of the Year Award in 2012. He finished his career with 1,092 tackles, which is the most since the and most in the NFL since he entered the league. He has 18 interceptions, or the most since a linebacker since 2012, and his third most in franchise history including all positions. His 75 tackles for loss were tied for fifth among linebackers amongst that span. He has helped the Panthers notch three NFC South titles from 2013 to 2015, and he helped the Panthers get to their second Super Bowl ever in franchise history in 2015. Now, I know everyone's going to draw the parallels to Andrew Luck's retirement, which Actually, Luke Heakley was a year younger. He's 28, about to turn 29, so I'm going to consider him 29. And Andrew Luck retired at age 30. But actually, I kind of feel like the more accurate comparison here is to Calvin Johnson. Now, the reason I say that is not because I felt that the two of them had the same exact types of resumes, but here's what I drew for similarities. Both these teams, when they retired, were heading into tumultuous parts of their rebuild, the Lions were always struggling at that 9-7 and seven threshold, never seemed to surpass it. They went through a coaching change. 
Both were destined for the Hall of Fame with their all-pro and all-decade talent, probably still in the later half of their primes. And I just honestly see that Luke looked at the – I know he said in the uh, interview that Matt Rule is not the reason he left, and I truly believe that's not it. I truly believe that he left more so because he felt that this team – with the amount that he could put in wasn't going to help push it to a playoff level. And if you're already questioning if you're going to play and you know that there's no real reason past making the – there's no playoff hope really for you as we don't know what the Panthers are going to do with this upcoming post uh, off season. They still have Cam Newton questions. They now have a new head coach. They just brought in a new OC. We don't really know what they're going to do. Will Greer didn't look like much of anything, but that's unfair to say, given with the circumstances he had going in. They gave up on Kyle Allen already. They really only have CMC. DJ Moore looked promising, but besides that, I can understand why Luke Keekley decided now to retire. It just is the best thing to do, especially with how the NFL players these days really take in consideration their health. Honestly, I wish Luke Keekley nothing but the best, and I hope he remains to be involved in the game of football in any capacity because the game should not lose men like him at all. They do not come around very often. All right, Browns Brown again. Now, what do I mean by that? All right, so their head coaching search was zeroed in on essentially two candidates here. They had Kevin Stefanski, the Vikings OC, and the Robert Sala, the 49ers defensive coordinator. So... For those who didn't know, the 49ers and Vikings actually played this past Saturday, and it was not really a contest whatsoever. Now, do I blame Stefanski for this, really? Not so much, but at the same time, it was basically a matchup of the two head coaches and Robert Sala with a 27-10 convincing victory over the Vikings. Surely looked like the better coordinator, but I one could also argue that he has much more talent on that defensive end than the Vikings does on the offensive end. I know what you're thinking that the Vikings have Dalvin Cook, they have Diggs, they have Thielen, and they have Kirk Cousins, question mark. But also, the four, their offensive line for the Vikings has been a question all year, and they were destroyed, but we're going to talk about that game later. And the 49ers defense was absolutely ravaging the Vikings apart. But, so, at, in case you didn't know, Bill Simmons also kind of alluded to this on his Twitter. He said that basically it would be really Browns-like if they hire Kevin Stefanski over Sala after this game. And look at that. They did. So Bill Simmons was right. Um, I know it was definitely a joke, though. He So here's the thing about Stefanski. He initially also interviewed for this Browns head coaching job last year, and he lost out to Freddie Kitchens. So my question is how convincing of a candidate could he be? I don't know if that's really a thing on Dorsey or really – on just Stefanski but I really don't think it is because the more research I did on Kevin Stefanski the more I found out that he's a very well respected coach and that he's been on that Viking staff since 2006 and every new head coach whether it was Frazier or um, Childress or uh, now uh, Zimmer that they've all retained his services on the team so he has to be a pretty valuable member of that roster, or else why would you keep bringing him back? He has served in capacities of being a running backs coach, a tight end coach, and a quarterback coach, I believe, but now is the OC. So here's the thing, though. If I was the the Browns here, let's just look at this year alone for impressive resumes. Uh, the 49ers defense ranked second overall this year, and the Vikings offense ranked 16th overall. Also, Stefanski... 
is now going to be the third youngest head coach in the NFL behind Zach Taylor and Sean McVay because he is now 37. Uh, And now everyone basically is making this point of how the Vikings made Dalvin Cook look really good this year. The number of times Minnesota attempted a run in 2019 was 476, which would just be one out of three teams in the NFL that rushed more than it passed, with Baltimore and San Francisco actually rushing more than they passed. Now, here's the thing, though. I am not really going to back this move for that reason because the false narrative I already see being proven is that Stefanski will help make the Browns a more run-oriented team. And considering that they were criminally underusing Nick Chubb despite his insane production levels, I would really expect these numbers to rise anyway. But let's not freak out when the numbers prove to increase and say that Stefanski is his offensive guru because the Browns ranked 22nd in run plays per game and Nick Chubb was ranked as the number one running back in the NFL in breakaway runs. So if you just give him the ball a little bit more, you're going to get more production. And I wouldn't really point that to being on Stefanski's side because any coach with a pulse that wasn't Freddie Kitchens would have used Nick Chubb more after seeing the advanced stats on how he did. Now, I wasn't the only one who wasn't really a fan of this move. Richard Sherman was also not a fan as he went to Twitter and was basically just saying how this was essentially bullshit, that he never got the job. Not Sherm. Uh, <laughs> Sala never got the job. And because that Robert Sala has created one of the most scary and most balanced defenses in the NFL. Now, I know what you're saying that I know what I already said, that they're the most talented team defensively overall, I think. But the issue really more with I have I have more of a counter issue to why they hired Stefanski also. So Gary Kubiak is also came in this year to help the Vikings and he helped craft the foundation of the Vikings offense and he served as an advisor to Stefanski and helped craft this running game to be what it is today. You're not getting Gary Kubiak on your staff with you in the Browns. So if we're really talking about coaches that really impacted it, it was already Super Bowl champion winning head coach Gary Kubiak. So let's just not freak out here about this whole f- hiring of Stefanski and say that he's going to turn this team around, even though he has a very good resume and that his offensive prowess is showed to be better as Kirk Cousins had a good passing year as well. But he obviously had a helping hand with Kubiak. And anytime you can get a Hall of Fame head coach to help you out, you're going to take it. This is going to be a little bit of a minor headline here. Uh, Brady cleans out his uh, Gillette Stadium suite. Now, this is going to be like a one-minute segment here. I This is just my thoughts on it. It's it's clearly a pure chess move, and I think that there's really just the only reason he did it was to establish the idea and craft, and more specifically, Belichick's head, that he definitely could be ready to leave unless he is not satisfied with the money that is on the table for this upcoming season. I honestly believe this is going to be a long, dragged-out process, and it's going to be a 50-50% chance right now I think he leaves because Belichick is a smart coach who knows, honestly, that Brady and his early 40s will probably not be able to produce at the at the same level down the line of this contract because Brady wants multiple years and this would just be a burden to the team at a certain point no matter if he like has a Peyton Manning-esque style return you'd rather have the Andrew Luck approach that the Colts did when they came up with this decision now Brady isn't having a serious injury that's the issue but Peyton Manning also wasn't 42 when his new contract was supposed to come up so at the end of the day I can tell you right now that this is going to be a pure chess game between Brady and Belichick, but I do not see a better situation that would cater to what Brady can do and what Brady will want to win than with this Patriots team because all it's going to take is simply just revamping the wide receiver core with free agents, and it could be done. And if he just – like, are you going to win in Los Angeles Chargers? Probably not. 
as a Patriots fan, I ideally would really like if we could just take if the Cowboys were stupid enough to be like, oh man, Brady, headline quarterback here, Jerry Jones would be salivating at the opportunity to have a showboating quarterback that he could just prance around like his little precious gem, and we could just take Dak Prescott from them because I've always said I really like Dak. But anyway, that's a, another conversation for a different day. All right, so now that the headlines are over, this is what I'm going to try. This is the new thing I'm going to try out. It's going to be called Who Won and Who Lost the Week. So we're not going to just have one winner and one loser. I actually have four for each category, or five. I think it's five. We're going to start right now with the national championship game. Winner, Joe Burrow. I know, shocker. <laughs> he won? That's insane. So here's the thing. LSU fell behind 17-7 to early, They're but... Here's the the big issue. LSU's offense was too much for anyone to handle. Burrow absolutely torched this Clemson defense, finishing with 449 passing yards on 30 completions and five touchdown passes to go along with 58 yards on the ground. This allowed him to end his senior season with the most single uh, in the single season record touchdowns in the FBS. LSU now has become the second team since 1897 to go 15-0 and in a season. And now, simply, that cigar smoking in the lounge photo is an iconic photo in college lore. And possibly, if Burrow continues to show his greatness on the football field in the NFL level, that you're going to see this photo for decades to come. It really was amazing, this Joe Burrow journey of being a going to Ohio State, backing up Dwayne Haskins, not getting on the field because of Dwayne Haskins and like JT Barrett, transferring to LSU, walking into there, taking the team by the reins. Your dad puts money on you to win the Heisman. You end up winning the Heisman. You have one of the best seasons at quarterback that anyone has ever seen. And now you're going from no one even putting you on draft boards, really, to being the number one pick and going to Cincinnati. Um, Zach Taylor is going to be happy about that, but I don't know anyone else that's really super, except for the Ohio faithful, seeing as he is from there. This is not. This could be a LeBron James-esque type return to Ohio. They might have their new king over here. It just might not be for Cleveland. It will be for Cincinnati. All right, so the loser of that the national championship was not Trevor Lawrence, I believe. It was Nick Saban. Now, here's the thing with Nick. I don't really get I, – I, he has to be loaded. He definitely is rich, but I feel as if his salary must not be enough for him, seeing as he's been in some seriously weird TV spots lately. That weird, that weird Affleck commercial – where he's just flexing his rings and saying that it's like a really safe place to invest your money. And it's just like, Nick Saban is not going to win any awards for acting at any time. He's very unconvincing in general. And I don't think that really sw swoons people to be like, you know, if Nick Saban's the sponsor for Affleck, I should I should probably get it too. Um, he also did this national championship pregame, which we're going to talk about in a second. And the Bill and Saban documentary special is also another moneymaker for him. So the thing about this national championship pregame on ESPN was Twitter was all over how sour that Nick was really not a part of this game or even the playoffs really as a whole. This is actually the first time since 2014 that Nick Saban was in the pregame booth instead of on the sideline for a college football playoff game at all. And there's that iconic photo now circulating through the Twitter sphere 
of how Lee Corso picked LSU, and you know that he will spend this offseason looking up ways to blow up this entire nation again with his five-star army of recruits just so he can be on the field and not seeing Lee Corso put on a, a Tigers hat and to having the Go Tigers with like the G-A-U-X style. Nick Saban, he did, obviously it's a treat to have him in the booth because he's a, one of the most inve- innovative and ex- experienced football minds on the planet. He's up there. Obviously, he didn't succeed at the NFL level, but you know what? You don't always have to succeed in the NFL to be considered a good coach. And the way that he has just been a consistent powerhouse in this entire college football at- atmosphere is honestly once in an entire generation, and you it's lucky that we get to get that insight, even if it looks like he absolutely hates the idea that he's not on this field at that time. But you know that's just going to feed him to study film harder, be back on what he does best, and win. I hate Alabama, but like you know that just will give him more ammunition. Another winner of the week is Patrick Mahomes. That Chiefs and Texans game was absolutely insane for two reasons. We'll talk about the Chiefs side first, but more specifically why Patrick Mahomes won this week. After going down 24-0, Patrick Mahomes orchestrated a once-in-a-decade type comeback. And the way that he told his teammates that they're going to come back from this is simply with this quote. They're playing man coverage. If we catch the ball, make one person miss, it's a touchdown. Let's go do something special. Let's do something special. They've already counted us the, you fill in the blank here, out. One play at a time. Let's do something. Let's go do this. And what did Mahomes proceed to do after this? He just found two. He just needed two plays after a Nicole Hartman 58-yard return to find Damian Williams for the Chiefs' first touchdown of the game. Mahomes had brought the Chiefs all the way back in less time than it took them to fall behind. That is an absolutely insane stat. Now I believe it was 24-0 with like two minutes into the second quarter, and. This allowed for the Chiefs to become the first team in NFL history led by Mahomes to lead at halftime after trailing 24 to nothing. They scored it was 28-24 at the half. They Mahomes then proceeded for the rest of the game to complete 25 of his 35 passes, 19 of 25 after the first quarter for 321 yards and five touchdowns, which was cemented by the famous foot drag touchdown to Kelsey, which was simply insane and proved how he had the insight to know. Like, how does he even know that that where the line was in terms of where his feet were playing? Because he kept his la- his back foot planted and dragged on the line of scrimmage to make sure it wasn't over the line so he didn't get the penalty. And that touchdown was actually insane when you just look at the wherewithal he had to know exactly where to be at the right time. This game got so out of hand at the end of the game that the scoreboard had a message flash and apologized to fans and it read, "We have run out of touchdown fireworks." Yikes. That that is just that is icing on the cake for what was an amazing playoff game. And there can't be a winner without a loser in this game, and the loser, if you couldn't have guessed it, is Bill O'Brien. So now, Bill O'Brien Already was basically on the hot seat, I think, to begin with. His seat must be absolutely... It it, ha, it has to be flame retardant because he has not been fired yet. But that seat should be scorching beyond belief because Bill O'Brien did so many dumb decisions in this game. He was getting handed this this game, basically cherry-picked to have a 20, 21-0 to lead. 
because in the first quarter, the Chiefs game, if I could, the Chiefs play in the first half, the first quarter was so sloppy. It was summarized in three words drops, missed opportunities, and just bad luck. That's how I would describe the Chiefs' first quarter play. So here was I, what I felt was the game decide. This sounds like a really weird thing to say, but this is what decided the game for me. A fourth and one within their own 25 for the Texans, and they are up 21-0. Now, most people, I feel like, think that they should kick the field goal, and that was what they should have done. I could not disagree with this take more. With a, If they went for it on a fourth and one within their own 25, well, they could have really put the foot on the throat of an already sloppy game being played by the Chiefs and just executed them right there. I don't know how it would have been so much harder to come back from a four score lead than if you just like a 28 0 lead. Like, how many teams are going to look at that and be like, all right, it's time to come back? And I knew once that happened that the Chiefs truly were going to win this game. Now, the, I, that sounds really weird to say, but the Chiefs would have been backed up inside their own 15, which would have been tied for their second worst field position of the game, which would have made, based on the play they already had, not. They probably wouldn't have done that well coming back. You can't really play predictor here, but I believe the momentum then shifted after they decided to kick the field goal because they got content with their lead that they had instead of continuing to put the foot on the pedal and just drive this game into a place where the the Chiefs truly felt that they were out of this. Then what made it even weirder after they made the field goal to go to up 24-0 was that Bill O'Brien made another curious decision midway through the second quarter. At his own 33 on a fourth and four, Bill O'Brien then decided, you know what, I didn't go for fourth down on the first time, so let's just go for it now. And they had a fake punt, a direct snap to the up man, Justin Reed, who was tackled by number 49 in the Chiefs. I do not remember his name right now. I am sorry for that. But he, he got stuffed. And then the Chiefs just took that and the momentum and just scored it down their throats. And that game was basically over there. Now, here was the thing Bill O'Brien wanted to do, apparently, for this game. He said that we felt like we were not going to be able to punt it too many times today. We felt like we had to manufacture some points, manufacture some yards. Now, this is what that quote really meant to me. He meant he was going to be aggressive and that he knew that he needed to play his most aggressive game to win. But really, when you kick a field goal at your own, like inside your own 25, when you're up 21-0 at a fourth and basically inches, you're you're deciding that you're not gonna go for it. How aggressive are you gonna be? A field goal is basically sacrificing four points, which is a punt in my eyes at that point. This quote really meant to me that they didn't want to roll over and take the easy route and coaching. Ironically, his coaching in this game was probably some of the most passive play calling I have seen in the game against Andy Reid, out of all people, who is one of the worst clock management coaches of all time, who if you decided to have a blunder on a fourth and one, I wouldn't feel super concerned at the time. So here's what we have to talk about with Bill O'Brien. Six seasons, four AFC South championships, a two and four playoff record. And you know what I'm drawing a, a, a similar comparison to here, what this feels like? This feels like the Warriors with when they had Mark Jackson, and they were on the up and up. They were hitting a they were they hit a ceiling of where they could go, and they decided to fire Mark Jackson, which seems skeptical at the time because they're like the team's developing. It's a young group; it could become better. But they, at the end of the day, the Warriors knew they had to make the jump and take a new coach with a new perspective to get these guys to achieve what they truly believed they could do. And the Texans desperately need to do this. Not only are they kind of screwed because they have 
Bill O'Brien, they have him not only as their head coach, but as their GM. And he thought that he had the audacity to say that after this game, that the the trades that he did in the offseason truly he he would not take them back. They made this team better. Um, the defense was a, a huge issue. The offensive line was still an issue for uh, Deshaun Watson as he was scrambling for the entire game, as he was against Buffalo as well. And they desperately need to make a uh, Steve Kerr-esque change to this roster to get a new coach, a new voice, but apparently they're content keeping him because he hasn't been fired yet. I would definitely, I think Texans fans would rather have him go. I think I saw a poll where it was a 56 to 44 percent chance uh percent vote that they wanted to let him go who who the hell is the 44 and what have you seen in the past few years to get there i don't know bless the chiefs fan uh the texans fans because they obviously are very content with mediocrity uh a huge winner this weekend was this past weekend was derrick henry Earl Thomas famously said before this game that New England defenders appeared unwilling to attempt to tackle the hulking running back. And that he added also that the Ravens' mindset was a little bit different. Uh, Thomas met Henry Stiffarm around the second quarter. And he got Stiffarm not only once, but twice after Henry had a 27-yard game. Derek King Henry here, uh, his latest dominance... Saw him finish with 195 yards on 30 carries and a touchdown pass. Yep, they did the wildcat on the Ravens when the Ravens have been running pistol all year and it's basically a wildcat formation. And Derrick Henry showed glimpses of an army showed in high school. It's actually a pretty good touch pass to the tight end. And after this win, we just saw that we we saw a win from a gutsy Titans team that Mike Vrabel has put his penis on the line for saying he will cut it off if they win, which is he hasn't backed down from yet, so we we can't say it if he'll do it or not. But at the end of the day, we just know that this Titans team looks pretty pretty good, and uh, they it should be a decent. I hope it's going to be a decent game between this Chiefs and Titans team. It looks as if after beating the number one seed, fourteen and two Baltimore Ravens that Derrick Henry and the Titans just smacked him in the mouth. It just looked like after that second Tannehill 50-yard bomb to the end zone, it was a beautiful pass, and I was just, like, wondering who who is number 14 on the Titans. <laughs> but can't take a single thing away from this Titans team. You can't say – you can't point fingers as to why they the Ravens didn't win – because the Titans really proved with the same game plan they basically did get against the Patriots with Tannehill throwing under 100 yards again. But that was pretty insane to think about because you didn't really think that Tannehill was throwing under 100 because he had some great clutch throws in that game. But once again, Derrick Henry is the winner of this week. Derrick Henry did things in this playoffs that are so special. He became the first runner to rush for 175-plus yards in two games in the same postseason and the first to do so in consecutive playoff games. No one has ever completed a two-game run load with long runs like Henry has in this past week. And he just says, I'm just going to try to make sure we all stay level-headed. We're going to put our head down and just work. I told them, 
Mike Vrabel said at the end of camp, why not us? We're going to keep the same mentality. Derrick Henry's been keeping the same mentality. There, there are reports that he goes into the OC in Mike Vrabel's room every week and says, give me the damn ball. Let me run this for us. And honestly, at this point, you really just have to give it to Derrick Henry. Tannehill can throw for 50 yards, but if Derrick Henry just keeps on going for these huge like six-yard per carry chunks, you're just going to have to see what this guy can do again. And if this Titans team wins, it would be one of my favorite teams that ever has won in terms of like where they came I know they beat us so the Patriots but at the same time like this team is really fun to watch they are just they are old school with the way they're dedicated to the run and you don't see many teams these days dedicated to the run as much as this Titans team now the funny thing about this game for me was that after the game if you haven't seen that famous presser that Mark Ingram had to introduce Lamar Jackson Tajay Sharp uh, took the podium and basically mocked the whole thing and gave us a really good spin on it. The NFL rushing leader, if anybody got a problem with that, come see me. We're about that. Big trust. Woo woo. King Henry in the flesh. Woo woo. It's all Pretty funny. I would have to say. So now, with this, the Titans are going to find themselves playing a Chiefs team that just came off that insane win in the championship game. So a loser here was actually um, Lamar Jackson's critics, not Lamar Jackson. I'm tired of this slander that's happened against Lamar Jackson. I don't know why people are jumping on this hate train to take down the future MVP of the year. Anyone that could, I think Rex Ryan summarized this really the best way possible, which is he went on um, Get Up and said, anyone that criticizes Lamar Jackson is an absolute idiot. It's blunt. It's simple. It's to the point. That's what Rex Ryan's been doing all year on that show. But he also followed it up by saying he has 500 yards, which included rushing and passing. And in this game, it's his fault they lost. I don't think so. Was it his fault his guys can't catch the ball and led to an interception? I don't think so. Pretty good insight there from Ryan. It's He is really good at just telling you how it is. So this might come as a shock for those, but the MVP award doesn't come from postseason performance. It's given for regular season performance. And Jackson's 2019 season one was one of the coolest ones I've ever seen. He led Baltimore to a league-best 14-2 record, which can't be taken away, even though they lost to the Titans. And Twitter was all about Bill Polian, who is the biggest hater of Lamar Jackson in the entire internet stratosphere, except for reasons that just don't even relate to football. And they pounce on him after one bad overall game played by the Ravens as a whole, not by Lamar. He was not a great game from Lamar, but he wasn't the sole reason they lost this game. Last time I checked, he's not the one tackling Derrick Henry or preventing Tannehill from throwing beautiful deep balls, I have to say. They were... There were many plays in this game that were out of Lamar Jackson's hands. There were penalties on special teams. There was that really awkward left butt cheek touchdown that they <laughs> that I don't remember. I think it was uh, Fouts, and I don't remember who Fouts was with in that game. But he said, like, something around the lines of, like, you can't – oh, man, I, I don't want to split these cheeks here for that touchdown or something. 
I don't know. <laughs> the game was never really in their favor. Lamar Jackson also really never started in good field position, I would say. Never had the opportunities. And anyone who's frankly hating on Lamar Jackson right now on this bandwagon is just going to look stupid and lose credibility after next year when we still see he is among one of the elite QBs in this entire NFL. And if you don't believe me, I will sit. I will take my opinion right now. You can take it, freezing cold takes or whatever, and just see – that Lamar Jackson's not a one-year wonder here. This offense is built for him to succeed, and it definitely did. They just faced a team that was very well prepared to play them. And one could argue that maybe if that Mark Andrews bobble touchdown, or not touchdown, just catch in general because of his bum ankle, couldn't jump an inch higher in the air, they were one play away from making some serious momentum to make this game close again. While I felt like the Chiefs game, the Chiefs were going to win the whole time, though, after that play, I felt like the Titans kind of just – that was a huge momentum shifter for Lamar and the Ravens team. And it's unfortunate because that Chiefs-Ravens game would have probably been really good. But this Titans-Ravens game also is going to be really good, so I'm not going to take any credit away from the Titans here. Another huge winner here was Aaron Rodgers. So where did all the critics of Aaron Rodgers go? is my main question because after we won this game, the critics seem to have disappeared. I actually ran a poll on the Extended Cuts Twitter page, uh, which is the underscore the Extended Cut if you want to find it. Uh, and the, the Packers are led the voting with, uh, I think, around like 44% saying that they're going to – that's who people believe is going to win the Super Bowl. And you can't tell me that half of those people weren't the ones saying last week that, oh, Aaron Rodgers is washed and this Seahawks team could actually beat them. Yeah. Um, Rodgers showed in this game why he is far from washed. And I know, albeit against a terrible Seattle defense, but in a playoff game, it really doesn't matter how bad the defense is. They got there for a reason. They won a game, I know, against a beaten up eagles team but at the same time they've won the game so therefore they proved that they should be there and that the packers showed up with a lot of doubt entering it based on their softest schedule and that rogers looked not so great even though he threw 26 and 4 which by most quarterback standards is a pretty good touchdown to interception ratio he didn't have to throw it as much as he needed to in past years don't know why we were proving that he was washed when we didn't even prove that they necessarily needed him to be the quarterback that people thought he should be. Rodgers was 16 of 27 in this game for 243 yards, two touchdowns, a nine yard per attempt, and a 113.7 QBR, which was on point when the stakes were raised at Lambeau Field for this playoff game. There was no snow. It was like flurries, I have to say, so that was kind of disappointing for me. Rodgers' go-to receiver was uncoverable against the Seahawks, that being Devontae Adams, who caught eight of his 11 targets for 160 yards and two touchdowns, including a beautiful pass into the corner of the end zone. Rod, vintage Rodgers-esque floater to the corner of the end zone right early, quick in the game. Now, via Ben Fennel underscore NFL on Twitter, showed that Rodgers on third down was actually insane in this game. He went 9 for 11 for 121 yards. He had one touchdown, zero interceptions. He allowed one sack, but he had a 155.8 QB rating. And I feel like what really showed Rodgers was back in the eyes of the, the, the haters was that third, I think, and nine he had, which was very like Russell Wilson against the Seahawks-esque, where he threw that beautiful over-the-top pass to Devontae Adams. 
that just sealed the game for the Seahawks to never get the ball back. And that, to me, shows Aaron Rodgers was never gone. He just is back in the spotlight. He was never should never be doubted. And I know there's that weird whole like NFL films mic'd up thing where he goes over to uh, Matt Lefleur and says, "Way to go, kid." Um, I don't really. I'm not gonna break that apart. I think people really just like to make Aaron Rodgers out to be a douche, and maybe he is a douche. But I don't feel like we need to nitpick every single little thing he does to prove why he's unlikable or why he's washed up. Let's just enjoy the game and not try to create dialogue for teams that are still winning and try to break them apart, all right? Is it that hard to do, or are you just too busy sitting on Twitter for the whole day and trying to think of narratives that are going to get you likes and thrown on like some serious media spins? I don't know. A quarterback that should be fed up is the the another loser this week is Russell Wilson. Now, Russell Wilson didn't lose, but... Seahawks fans should feel like they lost because I feel like Russell Wilson's tolerance with mediocrity is at an all-time high. Russell Wilson went 21 for 31, one touchdown and zero interceptions, which isn't a great stat line, but he looked really good in this game, despite the rushing game once again being absolutely abysmal as he led it for seven rushes for 64 yards. This Seahawks team was all Russell Wilson and not much else for help, I truly believe. The running game was abysmal after losing Carson, Penny, and Procise. I can't, I'm not blaming any of it on Travis Homer or the corpse of Marshawn Lynch that they brought back out for this game. But once again, Marshawn Lynch looked like he just definitely is – he made the right decision to retire and just didn't want to turn down this opportunity to have a sentimental return with his probably most beloved team out of all of them. Russell Wilson is now in his early 30s, and he has plenty of time to get back to a Super Bowl, but he cannot do that alone. And it's a very unfair thing to ask of an NFL team to think that this whole Russell can carry us the whole way here because the defense carried him in the beginning. There's a whole dumb narrative that I really don't like. Um, I also saw on some Seattle forum or some, I don't know, NFL forums, I guess, that people are saying that he should win with this roster if he's an all-time great quarterback. This team is terrible. You take Russell Wilson out of this team – and you put in, I don't know, Andy Dalton, they're not making the playoffs. They're not doing anything. They're going to be at home. Pete Carroll's going to be chewing gum on the couch, and that's it. I don't know what you're really expecting Russell Wilson to do with a below-average defense, a now terrible run game. You have Tyler Lockett, who shows flashes of being a great wide receiver, but he also is one of the most famous disappearing acts in the entire league. DK Metcalf has taken the league by storm, but he's not going to post 160 every game. I don't know. Russell Wilson said they need to find a way to get out of the second round, and he he should have clarified that his defense really needs to not even be Legion of Boom-esque. They just need to be good enough. Like, average defense to like maybe like 14th or 13th best in the NFL. Seattle has bowed out of the playoffs in the divisional round for three times already. 2015, 2016, 2019, and they suffered a first-round loss a year ago to the Dallas Cowboys as the hopeful campaign have fallen short of another intended goal of winning the Super Bowl. Russell Wilson has a clock, people, and he is one of the most fun quarterbacks I have ever watched, and I truly feel that this team is really taking advantage of what he can do. I know he's already locked into so many years of this deal, but if I was Russell Wilson, I would go to Pete or the management and just be like, guys, we seriously need to make some moves here. I know you traded for Clowney. That Clowney trade looked 
good on paper to get some pass rush, but you also got rid of Frank Clark to get him. I don't know. Did you really not want to pay Frank Clark, who looks really good on the Kansas City Chiefs right now, because you wanted to pay for an injury-prone Jadavian Clowney who's going to have abdominal surgery in this offseason? I know he played through the injury. Good for Jadavian. But seriously, you can't just have Jadavian Clowney, Bobby Wagner, and the um, the two twins whose names I am currently blanking on right now. But you can't just have them and expect to win this game. This team needs to make some defensive restructures. I know the running backs are going to come back, so that's fine. Penny looked really good in the latter half of the year before his injury. And I don't know. I feel bad for us. That's really all it comes down to. However, in the same division, a winner, ironically, is the defense of the 49ers and also Richard Sherman's ego here. So the 49ers allowed the Vikings to convert just two of 17 on third down in the divisional game in the NFC playoffs. That's 17%. And seven of the Vikings' 11 offensive possessions ended without a first down. Um, okay, yep, I'm, I, I did not like that, in the words of Kirk Cousins. They ran a lot of man coverage on third down, and they just simply allowed that pass rush to just destroy and ravage the Vikings' offensive line. And prior to the final two drives, the Vikings were only held to four first downs and under 100 yards of total offense, with Kirk Cousins being absolutely eaten alive by the entire defensive line. And it, it just looks fun, that 49ers defensive line. Like, they just have that, like, they said, it, I think um, Collinsworth said it best. They have, like, a, a wrestling-type vibe where after every sack or tackle for a loss, you see those linemen just, like, headbutting each other just just absolutely celebrating as if they just had a game crucial game winning like sack or strip or whatever it was fun to watch i know i picked the vikings to win that game but at the same time i also thought their offense would show up but thank god the browns have stefanski right um so another huge – I said that Richard Sherman's ego won this game now why do i say that because kirk cousins did throw one interception to Richard Sherman, which it was – people said he read the play really well, which he did, but all he simply had to do was turn around and the ball was right in his hands. I'm not going to say that he, like, recovered from a split or anything. I'm not hating on Richard Sherman. I'm just saying out of all the things to get fired up from, I guess that was it. That was the time. So Richard Sherman was interviewed after this game, and he simply said – that he felt he was being disrespected, and this is why. He saw the pattern and saw and read the quarterback. Or it was man, it was man coverage. You know, I, I, you, I get tired of hearing, oh man, he's a zone corner. I get tired of hearing the excuses for why I'm great. It was man coverage. I covered the man. I picked the ball off in the playoffs, in big games. I show up. I show up year in, year out. It, whether it's 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, unless I tear my Achilles, I'm out there and I'm doing my job at a high level. And I think. I get tired of the excuses, you know, for why, why I'm good. Oh, my God, they're playing zone. Oh, my God, it was this guy. Oh, my God, it, it, receiver slipped. Oh, my God. It's, it's like, why, why don't other people get those ops then? You know what I mean? There's a lot of other corners out there who have the same ops I have, you know. Why do you think that? And then he went further asked why me to fail. up with this. And when I didn't fail, it's like, how do we tear him down in other ways? How do we find a way to tear him down? You know what I mean? How do we find a way to rip his game apart? Because I'm too consistent on a year-in, year-out basis. You know, since I got in the league, every category that matters to a corner, I'm number one in. 
completion percentage, interceptions, touchdowns against, yards, like completion percentage, passer rating. You know, if, if that was any other corner, it wouldn't even be a conversation. Um, but, you know, I just get tired of it. You know, I, in, the, in the playoffs, I, I played in 13 games now, zero, I mean, zero touchdowns given up, three interceptions. Like, show me somebody else doing it like that. And, and then I'll, I'll enjoy the argument, you know what I mean? But there isn't. I would be safe to say that Richard Sherman's ego is back and for better, seeing as he's playing Aaron Rodgers now in the NFC Championship. And Rodgers has a history of not liking the throw to Richard Sherman. So, you know, that's just going to feed the fire. The final loser today is Kirk Cousins' body and mental state. Now, the do you like that king who made a resurgence after a surprise win over the third seed 13-3 and three Saints met a little bit of a stalemate with the 49ers defense as Kirk Cousins was pressured on 37 of his 35 dropbacks. He posted a 21-for-29 game for 172 yards, one touchdown and one interception to Richard Sherman. But also, dang, Kirk Cousins got the shit knocked out of him in this game, and that really sucks because I don't think he was able to do much. They stuffed Alvin Cook right in the beginning, so Kirk Cousins immediately had to become hero ball. And Kirk Cousins, as far as I have known, has not really been the king of – let me take this unbalanced offense and make it just into something respectable. Kirk Cousins is a fine quarterback. He's an okay quarterback. He's definitely top 16 quarterback. But at the same time, when the game's on the line and you really have to go against a stout 49ers defense and Dalvin Cook has been shut down all game, I wasn't expecting much at that point once that first hurdle really emerged. It was the key hurdle, and they really couldn't do much with it. Unfortunately for Kirk, he now has a further burden being probably the guaranteed money just makes it seem like he might not ever be deserving of this kind of money. But he was just falling into a great situation. And why would you not take guaranteed money on the table? Especially when you were the cream of the crop with the quarterback group at that free agency time. And unfortunately for Kirk, now he has a whole offseason under a new offensive coordinator to restructure the offense once again. And I hope to God that Kirk can at least stay sane and pull this one out. Kirk Cousins is a fine quarterback. I know I have shit on him in the past, but at the same time, I know what he's capable of and everyone else should too. So thanks for listening, everyone. And if you enjoyed this podcast, like subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud. And join us next this Friday with Ronnie Props for Bets.